Hi, and welcome to episode 67 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. My name's Maria Stolger, and my guest this episode is Del Catherine Barton, undoubtedly one of the biggest names in Australian art today. Her work is hotly sought after internationally, and in Australia, she's probably best known for the rare achievement of having won the Archibald Prize twice which is no mean feat in a race where women have only won the award 12 times in close to 100 years. Her paintings are instantly recognisable. Figures with drawn hands and faces look out of the picture with mesmerising eyes, existing in an imaginary world. That world is filled with colour and exquisite detail. Dell has exhibited in over 20 solo shows, including a four-month major survey of her work at the National Gallery of Victoria last year, and her work is held in many public institutions and private collections. But painting forms only part of her life's work, and although we did also talk about her filmmaking, we couldn't cover it all, from photo montage and installations to her current New York show, Sing, Bloodwing, Sing, which includes a 10-metre-long work in five panels of the same name. But to cover all of that would require a whole extra episode. We met in one of her Sydney studios where I was lucky enough to see 10 or so works in mid-completion for her upcoming October show at Rosalind Oxley 9 in Sydney. She's open, warm and honest and even though we touch on some dark times in her life, laughter is never too far away. All the images we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. We start with Del telling me about the influence of her parents in her early years. I was born in Sydney and lived until I was five years old or six years old in Castle Hill. And then my father quite impulsively, um, yeah, had a real calling for a, a country life. And my parents were both teachers at that time. And when we relocated to um, East Currajong, it was a uh, it was a completely run down, white ant ridden. Um, country house oh, that yeah. was that needed to be completely pulled down and rebuilt. And Dad, who was not trained as a builder, um, and Mum and Dad still working full time as teachers, so doing a, a lot of driving in that context. Also, um, basically, Dad spent 15 years pulling the old house down by hand and rebuilding his his dream um, family home for us. Oh, really? So we lived in a succession, initially just in tents, and then I think mum and dad, the penny dropped and they realised, yeah, just what they'd embarked on and how extensive the journey was going to be. So dad built a couple of makeshift sheds that we then moved into and oh, so it was... Really? And he wasn't a builder or anything? He wasn't he just, a builder. That's so, amazing. Yeah, it was completely eccentric and out yeah, there. And right. my parents are very interesting or were it's always a little bit hard because my mum's um, death is quite recent. Mm. So I, I think sometimes I still talk about her as, as if she's living um, and then I get confused qualifying that and, and emotional. But um, mm. they're very, they were a very interesting couple and very interesting parents because on one level, um, you know, they were both educators. We were exposed from very young age to very high quality literature and... Mm. Um, cinema but on another level they were very kind of real innocence in a way and I think that that was part of the calling to live on the land and be connected to the land and 
um, be much more off the radar. Um, and I mean, I think a lot of people would have qualified if they were observing the way we were brought up as is almost in a hippie style context, but it actually wasn't. And I think that that's what, um, because of the other qualities my, my parents have. And my father also, I mean, he's an extremely eccentric person, you know, a natural born hermit on one level, but also um, like very conservative in some ways. Um, both my parents came from very strong um, evangelical Christian upbringings, which they both moved away from in, in very different and radical ways. So, and my mother ended up being a, um, as part of her professional journey, um, a Steiner school teacher. So, you know, there are always lots of, you know, in-depth conversations about education and the importance of education. And my dad is, and my mum too, they were both very articulate people and you know, an ability to communicate um, was something that was, you know, highly valued in my family. Mm. Um, no. So, so if you were, you know, around the dinner table, um, you would talk about things like, you know, politics or literature or that's, was it like that at home? Very much so. Mm. And eating together as a family was something that um, both mum and dad were very passionate about and it happened every day. Yeah. Um, we were... Yeah, very much kept away from technology. Television was like ve very limited and highly monitored. Mm. Um, but no, we, I, I mean, I look back at my childhood and although, I mean, and you don't realise it as a child, you just sort of think it, it's mostly normal. <laughs> <laughs> but I consider my childhood to be to be quite idyllic, actually. Mm. Yeah. And it was, uh, so a lot of it, I understand when you were at Currajong, a lot of it was spent outdoors and what, in, in the bush as yes. such? Or, yeah. So it was a beautiful old property. It was an old orchard um, and an old Angora goat farm. So again, although my, my parents both worked full time as teachers, um, they were also hobby, but they just were workers too. Um, I can't sort of stress that enough. Like my parents have, they, they never rested. They were never kind of idle. And I, I think um, I, I really celebrate a strong work ethic mm. um, and I'm an absolute workhorse, you know, and a totally self-proclaimed work workaholic. And sometimes that's um, a bit out of balance and a bit damaging to my mental health and my physical health. but. In saying that, just this sense of optimising every moment of life is something that I really observed in my parents. And mm. um, no matter, you know, if there's fiscal hurdles or like there's just always a way of making things happen. Mm. Um, they just sort of got down and did it. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose especially with having this vision of building a home yes. because that's such a fundamental thing totally you know and and to do that without any experience <laughs> in that it's like you can do anything exactly that's passing on that message to yeah. you isn't it's it? madness it's, <laughs> yeah and on top that's of good. that I mean I do I look I reflect now I mean my dad also he's a great collector if not a pathological hoarder um the latter <laughs> <laughs> We had a whole back paddock full of 
tanks that were rusted and broken. And much to my poor mum's horror, like every month, dad would bring another tank home and oh. and just just kind of because... you mean like a water tank? That's right. <laughs> Not a military tank. He had so many grand visions and in the end oh. there's probably still a huge paddock full of even more rusted <laughs> But that's so great. I tanks. Mean, but isn't that, I, that's so interesting because in a way that's where creativity comes from. Totally. Isn't it? It's yeah. like, oh, I wonder what I could do with that. And even if it doesn't end up being used, mm. it's like the, the possibility is there. Which is particularly incongruous when it comes to my father because he's all about functionality in a way. Mm. Um, and he would have been collecting these materials because of some potential capacity to turn them into functional objects. But the level of um, absurdity is kind of really delightful too. Mm. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's great. Um, so as far as visual... Um, art goes. Yeah. What sort of, were you drawing as a child? What sort of things were you sort of exploring in that way? I, in saying that my parents, um, I mean, were educators so that there were, there were lots of things that I, I feel that were very, um, yeah, like very fertile discussions about lots of topics. Um, they weren't particularly cultured people in terms of having been exposed themselves to themselves in in their life experiences to art galleries um, dad was a great lover of music and I think that that really saved him as a young man um, yeah rock and roll definitely saved him <laughs> <laughs> from a really tough Christian family oh, yeah right um, so for me growing up it was similar I feel like they they did their their best and it wasn't that it was lacking, it's, it's just that it wasn't broad. And in fact, when I first moved home as a very odd, naive, insecure 17 year old, um, I don't think I even started visiting galleries until maybe third year uni. Oh, um, right. So I feel like my exposure to art, particularly as a child, was incredibly limited. Mm. Um, one of my passions as a childhood and I, as a child I um, and I very much did live in my imaginary world um, for lots of um, different reasons. Um, the most expansive and joyous being, yeah, just the natural kind of energetic extrapolation that comes out of living in in, in the bush, like mm. it's just such a powerful, like I just get a shiver even thinking about it. The bush that I and my brother and sister ran wild in growing up was pristine, just beautiful, untouched bushland. Mm. And I felt very safe in the bush and it felt like one of my truest companions. And I just, um, given that I, have always struggled um, with my brain and understanding the sort of brain that I was born with, which is a, a, a wonderful <laughs> brain <laughs> in some ways and then a very challenging brain in other ways. Um, I, there were certain rocks that I had in the bush and, you know, as life became, you know, more 
painful and confusing and at times traumatic as a, a teenager. There were just places that I would go and sit alone in the bush um, and take my clothes off and just really feel this in, incredibly symbiotic connection to place and to, to the mm. land. Was and that I, a comforting feeling? or Incredibly so. Mm. Nothing was more comforting than that, actually, just being alone in the bush, yeah. Mm. I was... I used to collect fairy books um, until a reasonably, you know, old age. I, I absolutely believed in, yeah, fairies and unicorns and, and mostly my drawings um, were really just about those companions and about the kind of like overflowing alchemy of, um, yeah, the imaginary life. So mm. drawing was um, an implicitly pleasurable experience for me and similar to I have a vision of myself sitting on that rock I just described to you. I, I used to feel the same way when I was drawing. Um, I mean, looking back now, I, I really understood that I suffered from acute anxiety um, from a very young age and a lot of issues with um, sensory perception and would have very terrifying episodes of, yeah, where my brain, I look back now and the psychiatrist that I w work with now has um, given me so many different paradigms with which to be more at peace w within that. But as a young child, um, when it really started to overtake my everyday life um, and not being able to control when I would have an episode or, and also like hallucinations and hearing, you know, voices within sounds, like just feeling quite terrified of, of, the, of the world and of being alive actually. Mm. Um, and my mum, who was very distressed for me because I was very distressed, and like say coming to the city for example is just something that I couldn't do, um, mm. that the environments were too stimulating for me and I couldn't process them properly. Um, mm. But she would always encourage me to draw as a way of, yeah, of, of just being more peaceful and being more connected to my body. So from a very young age, yeah, I had this very deep relationship with my, I mean, of course, I didn't consider it as being a drawing practice at that time in my life, but it was just an incredible relationship, I suppose. I was going to, yeah. it's not even a strategy so much. It's just that that I drew obsessively and, and that really saved me through my adolescent years as well. And would you be drawing those sort of imaginary companions or or is it sort of more that fairy those fairy figures and that sort of thing that you would be drawing at that time? or Yes, and treasure maps and unicorns. Mm. And, and we weren't exposed a lot to um, popular culture. But, um, and again, I definitely didn't get it from my parents, but from, a, from as a young girl, um, yeah, I've always been just incredibly interested in fashion and fabrics and just things that objects 
like whether it's yeah a chair or a bedspread or a garden yeah, like yeah. that had a lot going on visually. Um, I yeah. have a very ma maximalist aesthetic. Mm. Um, so that was even from early on. Ve very much so. Yeah. That, that things that had visual density mm. um, that kept your eye moving rigorously, I found very calming for my senses as mm. well. Oh, isn't that interesting? It is. Because it, it is. sort of sounds sort of counterintuitive. Doesn't totally. It? it totally does. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I mean, the power of drawing, I think a lot of people could relate to that as being a calming activity. Yes. Um, and I don't know what it is about it. There must be scientific studies into it, but uh, certainly I can imagine it would have been very useful for you at that point in well, your life. Again, I, and I'm, I, don't, I wouldn't want to sort of overly dr dramatise it and at the same time overly romanticise it, but I, I do feel like it saved me. It, mm. Yeah. And I just, I'm very grateful to be living in a world now and it's a very rapidly expanding um, science where there's, and also being married to an extreme introvert. Um, my husband, yeah, from a young adult really took it upon himself to, he has a strange brain too, mm. um, a highly intellectual brain and he's extremely introverted and it's, so we often, talk about mental health and what our brains need on a daily level and I feel that, that there's much more awareness and acceptance about that in the world at large or at least in this amazing bubble yeah. <laughs> that I feel very grateful to live in in this beautiful mm. first world place called Sydney. But um, mm. yeah. And you mentioned earlier that your mum was um, a Steiner school teacher. Yes, yes. Um, and I understand you went to a sort of Steiner-oriented school, late high school. That's right. What, what was that experience like? Do you have positive memories? Oh, the most incredibly positive memories. Yeah. I, I just, um, I don't like speaking negatively about things, so I'm always cautious to be critical looking back, but I did really struggle at the local high school where mm. I was. Mm. Um, I won't name the school. Um, it was a very tough Westie high school. Mm. Um, and again, I really don't like to dwell on, I'm a just, uh, look, <laughs> sorry, I'm mumbling here, but <laughs> I look back, I mean, there's no question that I was horribly bullied and, mm, right. and I mm. really struggled. Mm. Um, the art department were wonderful to me there mm. um, and there was one teacher in particular who just, I, she knew that I was struggling and that I was a weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> a lot going on and I just did feel a little bit of extra love from her, which um, made a huge difference to me at that time. But then mm. when I moved to Coral, um, which was in Lura at the time and where my mum, so it was a, a Steiner base school. Okay. And one of the um, philosophies of the school, which I really appreciated, as did my mum, was to try and find a bridge between, um, I mean, Steiner's education, a, a lot of people could sort of criticise for being too precious and too kind of separate from mainstream educational systems. So 
this particular school was trying to find a bit of a bridge between that, that it oh, still okay. wanted you to come out with your HSC. Yeah, right. Um, and be able to function mm. well in a university context, mm. which it, um, I didn't function that well in a university context, but that was for different <laughs> reasons. Yeah, not because um, of the stones. No, that's well, right. Did you, did yeah. you do, <laughs> I think a lot of us didn't function very well in the university context. Um, did you, um, what was your major work? Do you remember? I do. I remember it vividly and I, it was a very powerful gesture that I made with, with this work. I, um, it was a, a nude self-portrait with my legs open. Oh, wow. <laughs> to the viewer. Wow. Yeah. Now that is out there. I'm sure those mark, HSC markers hadn't seen much like that no, before. No, <laughs> So was that a pencil? Or no, it was a painting on canvas. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. And um, what did the school think about submitting that or of you submitting that? What was so wonderful about me with the Steiner School, and I was actually the first year to, that went through, that the school offered an HSC year. And in fact, there are only oh, 10, 10 people <laughs> in my year. <laughs> oh, wow, right, okay. And the art department it was a core sort of place in the school and, it, you know, with very broad-minded people and people that just felt more like my people. Yeah. And the whole, like, not having to wear school uniform and calling the teachers by the first name, but still, I mean, as I said before, I, I've, I've always been a workhorse. I, I still was hoping to get in the high 90s for my HSC. Like, yeah. it wasn't about yeah. being at some fluffy little hippie school. It was, I've mm. always put more than 100% into everything that I do. I, I just... And so the risks are always really high because you can never fall back in your mind saying, well, I didn't work hard enough because I always know that I'm yeah, working right. as hard as I can and giving the very best of who I am. Mm. But that's how I like to live, like risking everything and giving everything. Well, in a way, then you don't regret anything in exactly. a Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I don't live with regret, mm. no. And, um, and so what was the next step? Were you encouraged that, that after school to go to art school? What, how, Look, what from the then? youngest age, um, being an artist and finding a way to have a full-time practice was my only vision for my life. Oh. So it was a very, um, I mean, it, in, I feel like there's just so many contradictions and inconsistencies, I suppose, for all of us. But because on one level, I, I wasn't a very functional person. But in other ways, I've, I've always been very single-minded and resourceful and, like, when I'm on a mission, I'm on a mission, mm. like, and very unwavering in that and very idealistic and passionate and I get energy from committing to that. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so your experience at um, COFA, which is the University of New South Wales yes. in Sydney... Uh, did you find that you you committed 100% to that degree? Oh, and some. Yeah. To the oh, point, yeah. um, and I don't know if she'll ever hear this, but and I don't know if she'll, and I won't mention any names, but one of my main lecturers in third year, because all I wanted to do 24-7 was just make art. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> is, I got in trouble for being in there too much in the holidays. Like, oh. she actually said to me, she said, Del, you need to go out and basically get a life. Like... <laughs> 
Oh, so what was your life like then? Was it? Did you have much of a social group? What did you Not do? Not so much. Um, I mean, I love people. Uh, as much as I love my practice, I do love people, but I don't need that many relationships in my life, mm. which means that the relationships in my life can burn very brightly and then be very, very heartbreaking when, you know, they change form or collapse mm. um, because I, I am very all or nothing. Like I have a lot of love to give, so, you know, <laughs> look out, you poor bastard. <laughs> Um, oh, so so relationships were intense. I I yeah. do. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. a. I, I can't have too many people in my mm. life. I, it's because when I do invest in someone, I, I friendships, partners, um, family. Um, I I I just have to go deep. I'm not. I get mm. very anxious if exchanges stay too much on on the surface. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I suppose that takes time and energy yeah and energy yeah. and if you've got a full-on practice you just yeah. don't have that much to share around yeah and my practice um and bless I have such a robust um healthy relationship but my husband fully celebrates and accepts that my practice is my primary relationship And did you do life drawing at Kofa? I did, and I loved life drawing. Mm. And um, I supported myself through my 20s with many odd jobs. But I worked as an artist model um, while I was at university and a couple of years out of university. And I actually feel, and this is no disrespect to any of my drawing teachers, but that I learned more about drawing the figure working as an artist model than oh, I did really? doing life drawing classes myself. It was just such a, and again, because it was something I was doing quite a lot of and um, going back to some of the things we were saying earlier, one of the things I always found really interesting and challenging about life modeling was just being <laughs> in a very uncomfortable position and just having to really observe the pain and observe what was happening inside your body, ob observing the structure of the body, the angles of the body from, from an inside experience. Um, Isn't that interesting? Yes. Yeah, right. So I feel like it became this very rich um, engram, this sort of this body memory that, that, I, that I really feel today still in my practice. And I also just loved being in, an, in a room I've always struggled in group studio contexts. I'm very private about my work mm. and especially as a young person, just incredibly anxious and worried by people walking past or throwing comments in. Um, but I loved just being in that fertile, like looking space where everyone's drawing and it's a very distilled um, but highly energised space. Mm, I, I agree. I think being in a life drawing environment is one of the most beautiful it energies, really is. isn't it? Yes. Fascinating. And the shared experience and the shared looking. I don't know, it's just mm. a really special energy, I think. Mm. Mm. Well, again, when we're talking about meditation, that is a meditative thing of, of drawing a figure. Mm. And so I suppose everybody has been, you know, gone through that mental state together mm. Mm. 
and, and then you, you share that aftermath, mm. which is really lovely, mm. a very peaceful time. Totally. So you started showing with Ray Hughes in the early 2000s, is that right? Yes, it right. is. When Ray took me on, and that was that's such a classic story, which I'll just very quickly tell you. Um, just after art school, I'll just jump through this, but um, I had a full blown breakdown, which was um, diagnosed as chronic fatigue at the time, but looking back now, I, I believe it more to be depression. Um, but I moved back home and that was a really, really tough time, but I was still drawing every day. Mm. Um, and then I was at home, the only person at home and the house that my father had spent 15 years building burnt down and I was the only person mm. there on the day when it burnt down. And at that point, and again, we could talk at length about all of that. Um, but suddenly it was, I, I, I just mm. literally didn't have a home. Um, mm. And I got well um, almost overnight. And that is when I moved back to Sydney and started working in a group studio in Newtown. I had been in the group studio for a year building a body of work um, that I was going to show the artist run space associated with Kofor at the time, which was a combination of painting and drawing. I, yeah, I documented them all beautifully with slides and, and sort of tried to, you know, built up the courage to approach, um, you know, a handful of my absolute dream gallerists at the time. And at that time, so I was 21, 22. Mm. It's um, very young, isn't yeah, it? Ray yeah, Ray Hughes was at the absolute top of my list. So yeah, I parked my little bomb out the front of <laughs> that massive gallery and, you know, sweating bullets, like had my little folder under my arm and and walked in and he was sitting in his, you know, director's chair and he's such a fascinating, formidable creature. <laughs> Bless. Um, and I walked up to him and uh, I just like from the moment that I approached him and the first words came out of my, my mouth, I was just wanting to run and just absolutely dying. Um, but I handed <laughs> over my folder and asked him if he wouldn't. I mean, I, I'm just look at me. Like, <laughs> you look like you're back there right oh, now. It's just agony to even think about it. But um, and in fairness to all these gallerists, like the amount of people and young artists that must just yeah. cold call them like that. But yeah. anyway, he like just irreverently flicked through, <laughs> like didn't even really look at, at the um, images and then just looked me up and down and just said, basically, <laughs> why do you think I would take two minutes out of my day to look at this crap? <laughs> So I started, and he handed oh, it back to me. It, it, I started really? crying immediately, oh. and then sat in oh. my car out the front. <laughs> I did. I bawled. I was inconsolable. Like my, oh, I cried what for a, devastating yeah, a couple of hours. But in that moment, mm. and for all of my fragility and weirdness, I also have a very strong fortitude. And I just made a promise to myself in that moment that I would never put myself in a situation like that ever again. And just went straight back to the studio to make more work because that's my happy place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, but, I, but how did you end up showing me? I know. That's why it's such a mad story. So yeah. um, two years later, I was having another show with a 
that a different space associated with Kofa it had moved. Yeah. And I was hanging the show, a very eclectic show, um, across lots of different mediums. And um, the doors opened. I was hanging out with my boyfriend at the time and my best friend. And, um, and in strode Ray Hughes with two people. And mm. I, of course, just nearly, I just nearly died. Um, <laughs> like post-traumatic <laughs> <laughs> flashbacks. Anyway, I just turned to, I don't know, do whatever, but basically just he had come in still thinking that the previous show was up. Um, So it was a totally random moment in time. But he stopped and he he walked around the space once. He walked around it again and then came up to the three of us and said, whose work is this? (laughs) And I was like, oh, it's mine. (laughs) And then he took an invitation and left and that was the end of it. But then turned up on opening night and bought the best, this very raw drawing, um, mm. a self, a nude self portrait, yeah. um, and it must have moved on from the time that you had seen him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then our relationship sort of went from there. He um, invited me to be part of a group drawing show, and then I had a a um, my first solo show with him was that body of work I talked to you about the drawings I made in um, mm. San Francisco. So mm. yeah. And so from that point, you, you know, that was, what, the early 2000s. But if we fast forward to 2008, yes. Yes. we're talking about very large paintings and winning the Archibald Prize, which you have won twice. So 2008 and 2013, congratulations, with two wonderful portraits. So the first one was a self-portrait with your children. Yes. And the second one of Hugo Weaving. Um, how did you get from that? point what what was the what was it that caused you to take on paint in that way I feel like there's a little bit of mystery in there there's some a little bit of causality with the the birth of my first child I as I said before um like Ray really helped me celebrate being able to draw and that was his greatest gift to me. Mm-hmm. And then for me, after I gave birth to my son, I had an unplanned pregnancy and my whole world just inexplicably changed. Like suddenly monochromatic, um, delicate works on paper. It, look, it didn't even... <laughs> <laughs> the seismic like change in my universe. I, I just had to be using colour. And oh, for me... it's amazing. Yeah, paint is where pigment really comes in. Mm. Like coloured pencils, I'm sorry, it just it's just not the same. <laughs> <laughs> what about textures? I love textures, but again, just not quite the same. So you did so you realise at the time that it was related to that, do you think? Or do you think it's in hindsight? With hindsight? I think it's a little bit more in hindsight, but it was just the... I have never been more in love with a living creature than I was with my baby son mm. and this this incredible sense of abundance I can oh, I'm emotional thinking about it and gratitude just being in that experience and mm. in that moment and it was just again at the risk of sounding a little bit grandiose but um, it was just like lifetimes 
just shifted inside of, of me. Mm. Like I just felt this incredible abundance and this m incredible awakening within my experience of being a woman and that my body was life-giving and I loved breastfeeding. I, I just loved everything about having a baby. I mean, mm. sleep deprivation is hard, but I, it was just a really dizzy... I mean, challenge, of course. Again, I don't want to over-romanticise it, but I, I loved the messiness of it. I loved, mm. yeah, leaky breasts. I, I just... I loved natural birth. I, I just felt so real and just anchored me in a new lifetime, I feel. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> so it, and, so, and that affected your creativity in a lot of ways as well. Oh, inestimably. Like, yeah. And I've always been an artist that makes work, as it, even though my work does, you know, can be described as being, you know, fantastical or, you know, not of the, the normal... <laughs> real world <laughs> the real world but I feel still that I make work as a direct experience of life um, mm. but then it was a real challenge just in terms of finding the right materials to transfer the drawing onto canvas and and then yeah the the right yeah types of paint that mm. e excited mm. me in, in the intuitive so, way I was looking for, which yeah. ended up at that time being a combination of acrylic. I was, and I'm, oh, I'm working again with gouache at the moment. I, I just think there's nothing, I mean, just gouache is just the richest, most velvety, sexy fucking pigment. Like, yeah. but yeah, I was using gouache and watercolour on linen, which is a bit unusual mm. and a little bit problematic, but I love like, yeah, the wetness and the, the transparent, I mean, gouache and watercolour are very different because gouache absorbs the light, whereas watercolour is much more luminous and the light passes, like, reflect. it's more transparent and you use the white of the canvas more underneath it. And, yeah. Um, but that seemed to marry really well or at least open up a whole different way of thinking about making images um, with the line work as the basis and then oh, being able like to negotiate colour within that. I had made a series of small quasi-portraits um, and I've always been an artist that avoids um, studio visits as much as I can. It just gives me a lot of anxiety, but especially having my gallerists come in. Mm. Um, but. It was the first time Ray had come to my studio. I was, inc I was very, very. I mean, it's again so many sort of contradictions, but like the whole sort of blast of motherhood, which was just so life giving. Um, but again, like I was working up to <laughs> within a week of giving birth, and then you know, within days of coming home from the hospital, just feverishly working away again. I really didn't want, um, yeah, being a mother to um, stall my, the mm. momentum of my practice in any way. So this mm. was the first body of work, yeah, I'd showed to Ray and the work had changed quite considerably. Um, so I was very, very anxious about that visit mm. and it was a very pr profound visit. Um, 
And Ray in his very, and by then we had a, you know, really wonderful relationship. Um, I always really, I, I've always been attracted to really difficult people. <laughs> um, and I, you know, Ray was definitely a difficult person, but as equally just magical and maverick and fascinating. Um, but I was used, I was more used to him not saying much or, um, but yeah, he came into the, the studio. I was, I worked in a home context for the first five years of being a mum, which mm -hmm. was pretty hectic, but I think the only way I could have sustained my practice to the degree that I did. Mm. Um, he looked at the series of paintings and then left my studio and went out the front and had a cigarette. And I was kind of just sitting in my studio, just feeling again, like, oh, whoa, like this is pretty tough. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the fear was you've gone in another direction and that it's not going to and be. And he's come in yeah. and he's left without saying anything. Like, <gasps> and I had driven, Ray never drove, so I had driven him to the studio and then I would have to drive him back to the gallery. Um, but then he came back in and he looked at me and he said, and the work totally represents what the work you see of mine now. Like I had definitely made that huge shift onto a stretched surface and it, working with paint. Um, mm. He said, Del, you could have a really long journey with these works. And, oh. and it, that was just a huge gift at the time. Because oh, I, I, although I was very anxious um, and approval, especially with, Approval's a whole nother <laughs> journey for me. Like, <laughs> um, well, I think we all want that though, yeah. don't we? Especially mm. the people you're working. Oh, look, always. Yeah, yeah look. <laughs> Let's I not mean, qualify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially for artists, it's sort yeah. of. Well, it's hard enough. So you just do need a few people in your court telling you you're doing okay. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, encouraging you. Encouragement is so important. Yeah. Um, so. Then I had a huge show with him of paintings. There would have been, oh, I don't, and works on paper maybe. And I think it was my first show in the front space, mm, um, mm. and that was a sellout show. And that um, must have been really confirming for you. It was. Yeah. So it was a huge turning point. I yeah, think for yeah. me. And I'm and, thinking uh, that was around the age of thirty. Yeah. Oh, okay. And so then, that, so I'm sure that those the few years later, when you when you won the Archibald, that must have been another huge turning point for you. How did that um, How did that affect your career? Look, the most, and you, I'm sure a lot of the artists you've talked to that have had the crazy Archibald experience would say the same. Like, the most fascinating, at, in some ways problematic, but wonderful thing about the Archibald is the audiences that it reaches. Mm. Um, the week that I won the Archibald um, with the self-portrait with my children, I, I also had a sh my first solo show in Melbourne open. Oh, okay. So that was, um, again, just, just a real blessing too because it just meant that thousands more people saw that show that... That, that wouldn't would ordinarily. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And because portraiture, I'm very passionate about portrait portraiture, but it is essentially an adjunct to my figurative practice. Mm. Um, so not necessarily that representative of my core figurative practice. Mm. It just meant a lot to me. And actually the same week, it was a big week, I had 
a painting on the, the cover of um, what was Art in Australia then, oh, So, yeah, which right. again was a very different kind of painting to the painting that was in the Archibald. Mm. Um, you know, it was a beast woman with her boobs out and, yeah. yeah. So I sort well, of I feel like all of that coming together was pretty a pretty extraordinary moment for mm, me. Mm. Yeah. Well, do you find that with the portraiture in the Archibald, um, the requirement to get a likeness or the desire to get a likeness mm. is what is setting it apart from your other work? Is that the main difference, do you think? I see that as being only one aspect um, because... I find, uh, and, and certainly making a self-portrait eliminates the stresses of what I'm just about to describe, but certainly working, like painting someone, and in the context of the Archibald, it's, it's going to be someone you admire enormously, mm. is just a huge co committed experience to step into with just layers and layers of... Pressure. Yeah! <laughs> Searching around for some euphemisms, but because it's very, it's a huge privilege well, as like well. Kate Blanchett like, and Hugo Weaving. The first time I met Kate, I was, I was really, I, I, she's always been one of my heroes, and I found yeah. that look incredibly special. And we've worked together in other capacities since. Oh, and she's well, you've so directed down, her in a film. She's so down is, to earth, but it was yeah. a very, very overwhelming experience. And yeah. yeah, and I'm a real pleaser too, although I I can be, yeah, as I said before, I ha have a lot of fortitude now and single-mindedness. But if I'm going to work with someone and to give something to someone or to represent someone, I, I want them to be happy. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, no, so I totally understand all of that. that. And then the, the fear of not being a finalist and yeah, it's, yeah. it's so a lot. Would you, would you still lot. feel that now? Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, do you feel, do you feel it for your sitter? More like, do you, is Absolutely. It, yeah. 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 It's, and look, everyone, I mean, I think being a bit older and tougher now, I think there's a lot of camaraderie that goes into also potentially not being hung. Mm. Um, oh, right. Yeah. yeah. So you'd share, you'd share your commiserations with friends or whatever who did Totally. Yeah. Or if, say, I sat for a portrait and then that wasn't hung, that, that there would be a special bonding that would come out of that with a painter. Yeah. I mean, it would be more yeah. fun for us to be <laughs> but, yeah. at the lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Which I must say that, the, I mean, as you know, I interviewed Mark Etherington who painted you for the Archibald yes. and was finalist. And I loved that painting. That was fantastic. I loved it too. Um, that must have been a fun experience. It was so funny when he was telling me that he'd never sketched a person I know. from life before. <laughs> he had to go out and buy a sketchbook. He is, oh, I just love that man so much. Yeah, he's, he's such great, a special, he? special yeah. human. Now, I want to talk about one of your paintings that was a finalist in the Archibald in particular, and that's the one from last year, yes. which I loved, um, and it's called Self-Portrait with Studio Wife. Yes. And it's a beautiful painting. It's, it's huge, like a lot of your paintings are. Mm. It's like over two metres high and about, I think it's 180 wide from memory. And, you know, motherhood has been a theme that, 
is a, has been in a, a lot of your paintings, like the, the one so. you won, yeah. with the one with Kate Blanchett and her children. Yes. And this, in a different way, also addresses motherhood. And it's a portrait of you with, um, like, head and shoulders and with your gorgeous dog, Cherry Bomb, on your shoulder. <laughs> is a pun? And I'm is... so sorry she's not here today, but she'd be such a terror. <laughs> I looked at her longingly as I was leaving the home because, but it was like, no, she'll be barking the whole way through it. And oh, would she? She's, oh. A, she's a big job, that cute little nugget. <laughs> <laughs> is, she, is she a pug? Is that her breed? She is a runt um, French bulldog. Oh, French bulldog, of yeah. course, yeah. She's gorgeous. Well, from the painting, I haven't seen a photo of her. But, and she's sitting on your shoulder with one paw on your neck in yeah. a sort of affectionate way. It's an absolutely beautiful pose. Um, and you're, uh, you have your hands um, in midair in front of you with your palms facing you and, it's t and one hand is touching a, a giant leaf. And I understand you started this painting during the time that your mother was battling cancer and you finished it um, four months after her death. Can you tell me a bit about that painting? Yeah, I, I feel so, even though, um, as I said before, um, my work is so often a, a very direct experience of my lived experience um, and implicitly self-referential in that way, I feel very rarely moved to, to make a more realised self-portrait, mm. but certainly, um, yeah, my mother's illness and death, like the birth of my first child, is is the threshold leading into a, a new lifetime lived without her. Mm. Um, she was a huge. Um, she was so central to my universe, and mm. we had a very complex layered relationship but in essence just such a powerful deep um, connection mm. and I just see her gifts to my life in all the very best aspects of what my life is mm. um, and yeah I miss her every day I, this is the second year of living without her and I do feel like my grief, thankfully, is, is just starting to change shape a little bit and be far more manageable. Um, last year was really tough, but mm. it just... Did it help painting that painting? Yeah, I, I remember um, my parents lived, as I said earlier, well, they moved, they relocated down the south coast to an even more eccentric property than the one we grew up on. but. Um, yeah, driving home um, from, it, it's this beautiful place called Flat Rock, which is inland from Milton, a very, very beautiful part of the world, and mm. um, had spent time, we, we've spent a lot of time down there. Um, I even built the studio down there, which I d haven't used enough, but um, mm. yeah, but just coming back from being down there and mum being quite sick, I. I I was just on the road and it was like, it's time to make a self-portrait, like just to, it, it felt kind of inexplicable on, on one level, but I just knew that, that I was ready um, to doc document or locate 
my um, sort of inner emotional journey mm. into my creative practice in a really um, conscious way, I suppose. And the leaf, just with my mum, I mean, something I didn't cover earlier, but my mum's a passionate gardener and a huge part of my um, childhood was, yeah, being with mum in the garden. And um, oh, so it was really about just this very um, idealised leaf that represented sort of, yeah, um, the life force energy mm. and the cyclical nature of life and... Yeah. yeah, that's a beautiful composition, that whole painting. I just think it's it's absolutely gorgeous. Thank you. Yeah. And I very rarely, um, I think, using red in a background is very ambitious. Red is such a hot, warm colour mm. that really comes at the eye and comes at the viewer. So, But in this sense, it was almost a sense of, yeah, what's going on behind was coming in front of me or what's going on inside is is sort of bigger than what the physical self is capable of holding. Um, yeah. So we were talking about drawing earlier and um, I wanted to talk about the role of drawing in your paintings because it is a, it has a very you know, important role um, and it's what makes your work so distinctive, I think. And in particular, it's, it's the face and the hands that have got this drawn element to them. And often it'll be, the drawing will be on a ground which is left largely untouched, although sometimes with a wash, a wash yes. of paint over the top in some sections. Yes. Um, is it important for you to leave that element of drawing in your paintings? Very much so. Um, I love the vulnerability of line. The way that I draw onto the linen, um, or onto paper as well, um, with the pigment liners, has no plasticity to it. Um, so oh, okay. what the mean? mark is immediately permanent. So there's oh, okay. like total commitment and risk that goes into making that mark. And much as I love drawing and, and always celebrate it as being part of the core of my practice, it's not something that I can do endlessly because mm. I find it absolutely electrifying but as equally exhausting. But I also really trust, yeah, that vulnerable but kind of profound sense of commitment that goes into making a mark that can't be rubbed out or modified and really trusting the painting at the end, months later, with all the other areas which are extremely labour intensive, almost the opposite quality of surface. That though that the energy that's in that that line that that takes seconds to make, but make with total commitment. Um, I, I love the sort of that kind of juxtaposition and that kind of dichotomy, actually. And a feature that I particularly wanted to talk about, which is often commented on in your work, is of course the eyes. Yes. Um, and often in the works that aren't portraits of people, say for the Archibald, but in mm. your other work, mm. the eyes are quite oversized yes. in many cases. Mm. And of course, um, the colours you use are often not realistic, and which gives it that sort of adds to the otherworldliness of the figure. Yes. Um, and so the whites of the eyes might be blue or orange, or the iris might be larger than yes. usual yes. in pro proportion to the eyeball. Mm. Um, 
Is that, are you still in those circumstances, even though there's sort of a balance, I feel, between that, um, that otherworldliness and beauty? Yes. Are you, is beauty an important thing in your work? I think, as I've said quite a few times in the course of this conversation, it, that is such a big conversation in and of itself. Yeah. Um, certainly, I mean, on the odd occasion that I try to draw an eye closed, it's almost like I'm physically or psychologically incapable of that. Um, I do consider as much as drawing <laughs> is the core of my practice, like the eye is the core of my oeuvre. And I, I still don't really know why that is. Um, of course, I can lean into lots of different ways of talking about it. Um, I, I think essentially being the eye as the archetypal eye. Um, I hate trying to get artists to explain their work. <laughs> it's awful because it's a hard, it's a very difficult thing to put into words. I, I feel it's it's sort of putting you on the spot in a way. I'm happy uh, to be put on the spot a little. I just need a little bit of time sometimes to think about it. Um, and I, I'm, I'm just trying to distill it because it's a hard thing to distill and because, um, again, not only am I a, have a maximalist aesthetic, um, I do find truth to reside a lot in paradox too. So I feel like I could say something but as equally say the opposite but it's just as meaningful for mm, me. Mm. But I think um, I suppose to state some of just the obvious things with eyes but I want there to be a sense that the protagonists in my work which are nearly always women have as much agency with their gaze as the audience does. They're looking back at you if not looking with more depth at you. Um, so there's not just an encounter or the sense of an encounter. There's at times a confrontation. There's at times yeah, that there's a more complex dialogue that's happening mm. in the eyes. And that there's a consciousness behind yes. them. Yeah. Yes. And do you think, is that something that's been hard for you to achieve? It has. And I think it's something that I've put the most time and continue to put the most time into achieving. Um, if the eyes don't work for me, and that means different things for different works, but the whole painting is kind of dead to me mm. um, and it's a very delicate time-consuming process um, oh is it that's interesting like very delicate layers upon layers and and resting with it and mm. I often look at um, a lot of the figurative artists that I admire greatly I look at the way that the eyes have been executed and I'm and I could be wrong in saying this and it's hard to it's problematic to speak too generally about this, but the execution time in the eyes looks quite um, brief. Yes, yeah. or even to the way that the face is described, but or other features or other aspects, um, elements within the painting. But for me, 
yeah, there'll be a, I'll put down a layer in the eye. Um, a week later, there'll be another layer a week or, you know, it, it's yeah, really, right. and just so much delicacy around because if you overwork it, then the life goes out of the surface. So the, the life goes out of the eye. So yeah, that the paintings mm. got huge problems. Well, so, <laughs> exactly. Well, it's interesting with eyes because did you find that when you first really was, were examining eyes that you looked at a lot of artists' eyes, like the, the way artists had sort of painted eyes? I think I looked more at photographs, to be honest. Mm. Um, I'm quite cautious about... I mean, yes, I, I reference things inestimably other artists and, like, art is my religion. Like, I will look at art bef before and above anything else. Um, as you get older and you get more adept technically in, in lots of different ways, um, I'm, I'm, I become more cautious about looking too closely at how other artists achieve things because mm -hmm. I don't want that to become an unconscious part of my visual language. Mm -hmm. um, if anything, for me so often it's really about yeah, absorbing the visual content that I need and then ideally not looking at it because I want to find a way of in of inventing it so that yeah that energy of invention as I was describing before and that that energy of risk mm. um, and inquiry and making things in a way that still feels unknown is really integral to um, yeah, me not losing interest in the process. Yeah. 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 I really need to stay engaged. I, I need to feel that I'm risking everything for every work. Mm. I, again, that, that might just sound so no, that's interesting dramatic. But no, but it's interesting talking about risk because that's something I often talk about with other artists. And I was going to raise this with you mm. because when I see your work, I feel, especially with the detailed part, mm. I feel you probably don't, I mean, there is risk the whole painting, but once mm. you start getting into the nitty-gritty, the nitty mm. there's not a lot of risk involved in that. But um, do you find that there is a lot of risk in... How does risk appear in your work? Like, how do you feel like you're taking risks? I feel like it is always in the drawing process. Um, and then the way the, um, that I assemble the, the narratives, mm. um, so the content, absolutely... Um, but no, I do agree that the labour intensive areas, which a lot of people would see as being the hardest areas to achieve, are the most comforting. And I, yeah, right. I, again, I, it just does something to my brain to just make mark after mark. But again, I mm. couldn't work in that, that way all the time. But, but that's the sort of comforting bit. <laughs> oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Well, I can understand that actually. And I want to talk about that because. Um, for people who might not have seen your work, but I'm sure most people listening have, heard, have seen your work, when you, you, you have to go up close to really appreciate yes. the work because there's an exquisite detail in your mark making which you're famous for and um, especially there's in, a, 
in the abundance of tiny dots of varying sizes mm. Mm. and a fine line hatching that is, appears in the hair and the animals and in other places and mm. the, the clothes are often extremely decorative yes. and it's just divine. I just love it. And that's, you know, so you get this beautiful um, impact of the work from afar and then you get this double whammy when you go up close mm. and you get, just get that lovely experience and I just love it. Do you have a clear idea with those areas before you start, because they, they do create such a texture and such a mm. vibrancy and mm. vibration. Yes. Uh, are you, have you got a clear idea where you want that to occur, or is that something that develops as you go through? It's something that absolutely develops as I go oh, through, as you can see with the large work behind you. So that's in the very early stages. But this early stage takes a very long time to... Mm. Um, so what we're looking at, sorry, I'll interrupt you. What we're looking at is just a, a pen or a marker drawn um, face and hands and and basically the rest of the canvas is, is untouched yeah um, and I plan to spend the rest of the day you know working on this work drawing it up but no the very detailed areas will reveal themselves to me um, but in saying that because I the days need to involve different modalities of, of work again just well for my energy levels at times and um, yeah but sometimes I'll go quite deep into the detail um, there'll be certain areas that are completely unresolved and oh, so it's just a really long yeah. conversation and I in, really enjoy the it being a dynamic unknown conversation mm. and will so so your color choice Will that be dependent on what you've just done? Yes. So what the next colour will be will That's be. That's right. Oh, yeah. Okay. And talk. So about it's a very dynamic practice in that mm. way. Um, the yeah, you haven't pre-planned it, no, and then you're just no, executing it, which is it. kind of foolish at times, and <laughs> does get me in hot water at times, just especially um, compositionally. Mm. But I also love failing, and then, I mean, often when you're working with something that 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 is failing for for whatever sets of reasons that you're um, judging it to be failing. Um, I really enjoy that too. That's often when you find new ways of inventing your practice and new solutions. And again, mm. I really value that, that dynamic energy, which is also one of the reasons that I'm constantly pushing my practice into mediums that I haven't worked with before. I, I really enjoy not knowing things. Um, and that quality of oh, dead yeah. serious play um, yes. that you bring, again, mm. as you get older and more proficient in certain ways, um, you can bring, yeah, a very sophisticated knowledge to, to a medium you have no understanding mm. of and that can create really interesting things or just epic fails but... Failing well, is so important and so informative mm. um, and, mm. so in, and so vital to creative practice. Yeah. yeah. So with the painting that is failing, mm. uh, would you keep working on it until you... Would you ever abandon it? Very, very rarely. Mm. I feel like at this stage of my painting practice um, and with the resilience of the linen surface, there are ways of of eliminating and bringing back mm. um, and pushing beyond, pushing surfaces beyond places that 
I've pushed them in the past and I always find that exciting. Um, what do you mean as in technically? Yes. So, and employ I've been working a little bit with oil recently on top of the water-based surfaces and, and why have you been doing that? What, just for something different or? Yes. And just mm. because again, um, there are certain qualities that oil paint has that other paints don't and that's incredibly exciting and sexy mm -hmm. and yeah. yeah. And um, can you talk to me a little bit about these really exciting um, different art forms you've been exploring in the last few years? Um, you've started going into filmmaking and um, uh, firstly with your short film Red which um, was uh, directing Kate Blanchett mm. in that wonderful film, um, which was shown at the NGV last year, and which also ended up in all these international film festivals and was highly acclaimed and uh, was very, very powerful. Uh, but I wanted to talk a bit more in detail about the animation that came out of the book that you made in relation to the story of Oscar Wilde called The Nightingale and the Rose. Yes. And those paintings that you painted in relation to that were just absolutely exquisite and um, sort of told the story of that of that sort of tragic tale. Yes. Now I understand you collaborated with Brendan Fletcher who is a filmmaker who yes. is a filmmaker yes. and that neither of you had actually worked in animation before. Correct. And, it, <laughs> and it took you three years to make. It did. Can you tell me what was it that drew you to doing that and how did it come about? Just to sort of really bullet point through that process, um, I was offered a commission book project um, and the idea, the premise was, and I feel like it really was a collab collaboration with my publisher. Um, we were both passionate about the idea of making an adult fairy story um, and whether it was initially collaborating on a new story with a living writer or yeah, finding a, f a fairy story that that I felt moved enough to, you know, spend two years <laughs> making work about. Yeah. Um, so that in itself was an interesting process. And in the end, um, I mean, Oscar Wilde has always really featured for me. And this story is oh, just so core to, I think, so many of the, the narratives that speak to my oeuvre at large. Mm. Essentially, I connected to the protagonist of The Nightingale I saw her in many ways as being, in a very idealised way, like the, the true artist, that she gives everything that she has um, and more. Like what she is able to give in the end is beyond anything that she could have even imagined she might be capable of and dies an ecstatic death in that process, a pain. Mm. A painful, mm, ecstatic death. Painful. I should just um, probably explain the story if people don't know what it sure. is. Yeah. Um, Everyone should read it. Yeah. Because the language is beyond, beyond beautiful. Oh, is it? Oh, oh, I've never read it. He's, the way that Oscar Wilde can layer in meaning, you just just read it for yourself. Yeah. You, think, <laughs> you think there's no point trying to describe how does there that one no happen? Point. Okay, there I'll, is I'll no send point. everybody off one of to, the, the true to read it. Giants of you know. Well, all <laughs> I, can I just just for the listeners so that they know, it, it's just the the nightingale when when Del says that it gives everything, it gives its life basically to to 
to through song yeah, yeah. through song mm. by well yeah so she but my, yeah I don't quite get it because <laughs> when I watched it I thought what well it's sort of like almost in vain because it didn't end up getting the desired result because she gives her life but in she order still to... gave it and died with meaning and that was my point of engagement mm. and the song she made in that process was breath breathtaking mm. and ecstatic yeah mm. Well, and that's what artists have to do. They have to give everything without knowing what the outcome will be. It's very idealised, but I find that so exciting and electrifying. Mm. You just have to give to the process, give everything. And almost don't expect anything back. You, you can't. If you have expectations, then there are immediately limits on the experiential level of the experience, so what, why do it at all? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, well, I suppose that's right. <laughs> well, I say most artists would probably not produce work for that in that way. I don't know, I'm guessing, because a lot of people have in mind, well, you know, I want to please somebody or I want to sell it or whatever. But for me, if you distill it down to a pure impulse, um, the only reason to make work, the only reason to pursue the life of an artist is, is what the energy that you get from making the work. The only thing that can sustain you is the relationship that you have with your work. Mm. I don't see any other, I mean, yes, there are so many other layers that are very important, especially to adult living, but um, yeah. Mm. And with when you venture into these other art forms, um, does that increase or amplify that energy in a way? I mean, did you... Yeah, so just to continue the story of that particular project, which was a, a, a very extended journey. Um, well, it was a story I was already aware of. Um, and I, it's, a, it's a very sentimental story. Sentimentality is often a dirty word in fine arts. I, I, I think something that you know you're going to read that's going to make you cry can be such a beautiful experience and a, a celebration of melancholy too, mm. which is a totally different space to being sad or depressed. Mm. Um, it's a space that has a lot of creative energy in my experience. Mm. Um, and also, yeah, told through the language of Oscar Wilde, which is just pure magic. Mm. Um, I mean, very rarely and not since art school had I made work outside of you know doing a portrait to a prescribed to prescribed content and I was very afraid of that I, I but in the end I really enjoyed that and it pushed my practice in unexpected ways that that really grew it as well yeah. um, the book was a wonderful object and and has I think recently gone to its sixth reprint or wow, something yeah well those those um paintings are just absolutely beautiful um, um, and then suddenly I did just have a body of work and I've always been interested and sort of lusted after the idea of working um, with film and moving image and animation mm. um, but yeah minutes in a day and just always <laughs> yeah. having so many wonderful deadlines and it's just how do you actually carve out time for these mm. sorts of monumental projects that involve lots of different skill sets, are very expensive, uh, you know, the, the list goes on. And 
Um, I was having a creative meeting, yeah, with the beautiful Brendan Fletcher about something else, and I actually just wistfully, I think I'd given him one of the books and just said quite wistfully that I would love to make it into an animation. And Brendan's one of those incredible people. Not only is he a, a wonderful filmmaker, but he just has this really beautiful way of, of, of producing, actually. So bringing creatives together um, in, in, you know, to, in a collaborative uh, mm. um, context. And he just said, well, let's do it. <laughs> so it was suddenly like, well, oh, wow. easy. <laughs> easy, not so easy. but Yeah. Well, if you think too much about how much work is involved, you probably never start it. You no, know. I, I, look, if something's going to be a lot of work, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> well, what I loved about that um, film was that it, it, it sort of kept this sort of feeling of the flatness of yes. the painting. Yes, um, but Which almost was a huge challenge for the yeah, animation I could imagine, team. And... Because it didn't change the nature of your work, which is the beauty of it. Um, and so the bird, for example, was, it was almost like a collage flying a along. And those beautiful dots that you, you know, and the backgrounds and the lines were um, like vibrating almost, you know, and moving. And so in a way, it's sort of bringing your work to life, but not moving too far away from it. Yes. Which yeah. must, you, I mean, how did you feel about it when you saw it? At the end, um, and everyone who worked on it, like it, we were all we all worked so passionately on it, um, but it was enormously challenging in every way. At the end, I think we're all just so relieved to get to the end, <laughs> and then take a step back. And when I saw it for the first time on the big screen, it was at the Berlinale in Berlin. And I think that that was the first time that I saw it with fresh eyes. And look, I'm a perfectionist, so there's still things that I'm critical of. But no, as a whole experience, it felt very true to what, yeah, my intuitive kind of core impulse really wanted it to be. And mm. it, still when I watch it now, I, it takes me to that really that place of, of heartache and mm. I think it's, yeah. It's extremely powerful. Yeah. I often ask my guests what, you know, about their routines and whether they, and how they get into the flow of painting when yes. they come into the studio. Do you have a set routine? I, I have a reasonably routined week, but I think one of the skills of, of being a working mother is an ability, yeah, to be reasonably flexible too. Mm. Um, I don't. I don't even need an on-off button to make work. I'm always on. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> but right. it's just about being mindful of what that onness might look like. So whether I'm capable of drawing up a canvas, which is very hard, or whether mm. I'll just bang out some works on paper um, with more irreverence and pleasure, or yeah, whether it's doing some writing or you know, I'm developing an, a floor installation work for one of my upcoming shows, so um, uh, some other bigger commissions as well. So it's just... So you don't, you wouldn't come in here and think, oh, I don't know what to start on and, pro and procrastinate. Oh, I don't know. So you no. would just launch into something. Would you yes. have like a, you think, okay, tomorrow I'm going to start with that? Mm. Oh, or would you decide when really, you walk in? No. Yeah. But having said that, um, I only have one or two pure creative days a week and I live for that. And then there's uh, just a lot more sort of, um, yeah, calendar days after that. So, mm. yeah, 
meetings. Um, I now have a lot more help with my admin, which just seems endless. I don't know how I have ended up with so much fucking admin. Um, yeah, and then just giving time to each big project as it as it needs to. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, I, I would have thought that that requires a fair bit of discipline. Do you feel like you're a pretty disciplined person? Uh, the hard work is the easy bit for me. Yeah, so I don't even feel that it's disciplined. I, yeah, I can't live without it. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's just a positive experience. So you just love no, no, oh No, no, it's, I want to be clear about that. Sometimes it totally sucks, <laughs> but working hard comes easily to me, mm, mm. yeah. And... Um, <laughs> lucky. <laughs> um, Not very good at sitting on the couch. Yeah, Unless no, I'm sitting okay. on the couch drawing. Yeah, right. well, that's right. I mean, I must say, watching TV, just the idea of watching TV without doing anything else is a yeah. bit, it's sort of, you feel like you're, it's very frustrating. Um, and just lastly, do you have any advice for people who are sort of, um, you know, hoping to grow their art practice and sort of launch into an art career and how are they, how to, to sort of approach galleries or what, what they should be thinking about? Yes. I have, um, and I think I said it already today, like from the most pure part of me, and this might sound a little bit ruthless, I, I just think there is no reason, <laughs> I can't think of any reason to attempt to have a career as an artist. So it's different from, you know, making... Want to make a living out of art, you mean? Like having to make... Yes, yeah. having, having a career as an artist. Mm. The only reason to do that is if you can't live without making your work. Because I really do believe that that's the only thing that can sustain you. Because it's a very, very hard road. Mm. Yeah, and there's different challenges at different stages, mm. but they're all, but the stakes are are always so high um, that the energy that sustains you is the energy you get from your relationship with the work. Mm. I could speak at length about things that I feel have worked for me and and haven't. Um, but that is a much longer conversation. But I think if there was just something that I would say off the cuff, um, I think just really learn, I mean, if you're a Sydney artist, I mean, ideally you learn about all of the Australian art worlds, but there are lots of art worlds um, and there's art worlds within art worlds and just get out and go to galleries and look at work and inform yourself and celebrate other Australian artists. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, that's great advice. Mm. Definitely. Well, Dill, thank you. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Oh my goodness, what that a, was a marathon. It was <laughs> thoroughly enjoyable on my part. So thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you also. What a wonderful artist. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Del Catherine Barton. If you happen to be in New York the week this podcast comes out, go and see her sensational show at Albert's Bender, which is on for a few more days until 13 April 2019. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, her next show in Sydney opens in October at Rosalind Oxley 9 in Paddington, which I will definitely be going to. 
Also, for those of you who follow on Instagram, you might have noticed I often advertise upcoming shows of past podcast guests on my Instagram stories, which, as you probably know, last for 24 hours. So if any of you artists out there have a show you'd like me to let people know about, just tag me on a post and I'll put it on my stories. You don't have to be in Australia. Any of you listeners in the US, in Canada, in the UK... Japan, New Zealand, wherever you are, let me know about your show and I'll get it onto my stories. Thanks for listening and hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. Again, one of my primary loves is paper um, and I always just feel more free with paper. So the, the marks can be looser and fresher um, or more immediate, you know. Whereas with painting and then the robustness of the, the linen surface, the way that, that I relate to that is with a much more extended journey with, you know, really dense mark making. Mm. Um, it, I do, I feel like I have a very different relationship to paper and to, to linen. And something I can't fully explain. Yeah. It's, yeah. Right.